listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Scripture reading now is from 1 Samuel chapter 4 verses 1 and we're going to read into chapter 5 but we're not going to read the final paragraph that's printed in the order of worship so we're going to stop at verse 5 in chapter 5 but let's hear God's word. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle and fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. 
As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. She did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. When they rose early the next morning... Behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Amen. This is God's words. Here at Trinity, we are partway through a sermon series in 1 Samuel, looking initially at the first seven chapters. Uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are books in the Old Testament that document a particular part of the history of God's people. Uh, And you'll know if you've ever read on in 1 Samuel that it's around this time that God's people, who, who in the Old Testament were the nation of Israel, have a king appointed to rule over them for the first time in the nation's history. In the period leading up to 1 Samuel, Israel had been ruled not by kings, Uh, but by a series of judges. Uh, You can read all about that in the book of Judges. Uh, And for the most part, it doesn't make for pleasant reading. Life for God's people under the leadership of the judges hadn't been all bad, but it wasn't far off. Israel had been consistently attacked and oppressed by their hostile neighbours, the Philistines. There were huge internal problems too. The leaders of God's people failed to lead in the way that God had instructed them to. Uh, If you've been with us, over the last few Sundays, then you'll know that these problems, they hadn't gone away at the beginning of 1 Samuel. But what we do find at the beginning of 1 Samuel is a hint of hope for God's people. And it centres this hope on a young man named Samuel, which is where the books take their name from. God had made it clear that he was about to remove Israel's current leaders and replace them with Samuel, who already as a young man had demonstrated more regard for God and his ways than any of his senior authorities. There was hope. Yet before things would get better for God's people, they get worse. Samuel, Israel's glimmer of hope, he disappears for the next few chapters. Uh, We read of him in the first verse of chapter 4, but then he's not mentioned again until chapter 7. And in these few Samuel-less chapters, before things get better, they get worse. Perhaps you know what that feels like. You want so desperately for your circumstances to improve, but they only seem to get worse. Yet in the continued darkness of these next few chapters, there are important lessons to be learned. 
These next few chapters of 1 Samuel teach us what we ought to rely on when life is hard, when everything seems hopeless. In fact, they teach us that one of the primary ways God refines his people and causes his people to learn some of the most fundamental lessons that we need to learn is, in fact, by allowing life to seemingly get worse. So what is it that we need to learn? What is it that we need to trust in and rely on at all times, but especially when life is hard? Well, today's passage guides us in answering these questions by telling us about three humiliating events. This passage is all about humiliation. I want us to look at three things this afternoon. The humiliation of God's people, the humiliation of God's enemies, and the humiliation of God. The first thing we see in 1 Samuel 4 is God's people being humbled, being humiliated. In verse 1, we're told that Israel is once again going out to battle against the Philistines, their hostile neighbours. There's no detailed description of the battle because the battle itself isn't the focus. The focus is the defeat that Israel suffered in the battle. At the end of verse 2, we're told that the Philistines killed 4,000 Israelite soldiers. And the defeat is made all, all the more humiliating by the fact that the place where Israel had set up camp was a place called Ebenezer, told in verse 1. Ebenezer means rock of help. There was apparently no help for God's people that day. This is precisely what the elders of Israel recognise when the Israelite troops retreat and give their report of the battle in verse 3. In fact, the leaders not only question why the Lord didn't help them in battle, but they put it in even stronger terms. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines, they ask? It's a good question. It's a question that rightly recognises that God is in control of everything. And so things could have gone differently if he wanted them to. But the answer they give to their question is less than good. In the second half of verse 3, they decide that the reason the conflict with the Philistines is going so badly for Israel is because they haven't got the Ark of the Covenant with them on the battleground. And so they make arrangements for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to be brought to Israel's camp. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was hugely significant for Israel. In its essence, the Ark of the Covenant was something really quite basic. It was a box, not much bigger than one metre in length, just over half a metre in depth and width. But it was significant because it was a box that God had instructed the people of Israel to make and it was to be kept in what was referred to as the most holy place in the temple or or in the portable temple, which was the tabernacle before the more permanent temple was built. And it was to be kept in the the sacred space because of what it symbolised. It symbolised that God is the king of his people. He rules his people. We even see this in the way that the ark is referred to in verse 4. It's referred to there as the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. Cherubim in the Bible are what one commentator describes as winged superhuman creatures. And God had instructed that figures of these winged supernatural creatures be carefully crafted and attached to the lid of the ark of the covenant. These supernatural creatures on the top of the ark were, in a sense, a representation of God's throne. He is enthroned on the cherubim. 
And who is it who sits on a throne but the king, the ruler? The Ark of the Covenant represented, first of all, God's kingly rule of his people. But it also represented the idea that God is the one who speaks to his people. He reveals to us what is true. Because inside the Ark of the Covenant were written copies of the Ten Commandments, the words that God spoke when he brought the people out of slavery in Egypt and established them as a nation at Mount Sinai. The Ark of the Covenant was significant because it was an emblem of God's rule, he's king. It was also an emblem of God's revelation. He speaks and reveals himself to us. He reveals what is true. And therefore we rely on him if we are to know what is true. We are not the ones who get to determine what truth is. It was also significant because it reminded God's people that he is a God who forgives. As part of the sacrifices that Israel's priests were instructed to make in the Old Testament, once a year, the lid of the ark was sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice. The blood was a reminder that our sin requires a payment. Our lives must be held to account. But the provision God made for his people's sins to be paid for, not with their own blood, but with the blood of a sacrifice, was a reminder of God's mercy, of his forgiveness. The Ark of the Covenant encapsulated so much about God and how his people were to relate to him is hugely significant for Israel. And yet that wasn't the only reason the elders sent for it during the battle with the Philistines, because the Ark had also been a sign in the past of God leading his people in battle against their enemies. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, we're told that whenever Israel would go out to fight in war, when Moses was still alive and the one leading God's people, the ark would be carried along with the troops. And Moses would say as the ark went out, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. The Ark of the Covenant had long-standing associations with Israel's success in the battles they fought. All of which is to say, if I've lost you at any point there, that the Ark of the Covenant was hugely significant. And it was significant even when it came to warfare. Which is why, when the Ark then arrives at the scene of the battle in verse 5, the mood in both the Israelite camp and the Philistine camp changes. We're told in verse 5 that as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. The Philistines, on the other hand, when they learned the reason for the great cheer that they'd heard, they were afraid. In verse 7, they said, A God has come into the camp. Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. It seems like a turning point. It seems like the humiliation of God's people was over. That what caused their humiliation was simply that they forgot to take the ark with them into battle. But the Philistines pick themselves up, go out to fight, and inflict an even greater defeat on Israel. We're told in chapter 4 verse 10 that 30,000 Israelite soldiers died on this occasion. And the humiliation doesn't end there. Because in verse 11, the Ark of the Covenant, which Israel had brought up to battle, is then captured. It's taken back to Philistine territory. God's people were utterly humiliated. 
And the question that hangs over these humiliating events is the same question the elders asked back in verse 3. Why? Why did God allow his own people to suffer such a humiliating defeat? The answer to that question has two parts to it, really. The first part of the answer comes in verse 11 and in the paragraph that follows it. In verse 11, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli the priest, who themselves served as priests, and who we discovered back in chapter 2 also served themselves as priests. That is, rather than serving God's people, they selfishly carried out their own agenda to the detriment of God's people. In verse 11, we're told that Hophni and Phinehas were among those who died. God had promised and had declared to Eli that since his household had led God's people in ungodly ways and had led the people away from God, his household would be removed from office. They'd no longer serve as priests. And the sign that God would be true to his word that he had told to Eli was that both Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day, which is precisely what happens during this battle. In the paragraph that follows in verse 12 to 18, a report of the disastrous defeat reaches Eli, Israel's elderly priest back in Shiloh. He's told about his sons, but for him the more significant report was that the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the covenant which the priests were tasked with protecting and preserving had been captured. In horror, he falls backwards from his seat, breaks his neck, and he dies. God had promised that he would remove Eli's household, under whose leadership God's people had suffered, and whose leadership was at the centre of Israel's problem. Eli's household had lived ungodly lives, and they had led God's people to do the same. Why did God allow his people to suffer such a humiliating defeat because through the defeat God would continue to purify his people to refine his people by removing those who had led his people in impurity and therefore making provision for his people to worship him as they ought to do you see then how much God cares about the purity of his people How much God is concerned that his people live godly lives, as he calls us to, and worship him rightly. His concern for the purity of his people is such a priority to him that he is willing for his people to be humiliated in order that they might be purified, in order that they might live godly lives. He is willing, in a sense, For his own name to be humiliated in the process of weaning his people off their sin and off their ungodly lives. Because he even allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be captured. As well as allowing his people to be made a laughing stock. All of which ought to cause us to ask ourselves. Do we have that same level of concern for our godliness? If God cares so intensely about not only saving his people in the first place, but then purifying those he has saved, causing us to grow in living not according to our own desires, but according to God's will, do we care about this too? There's a second answer to the question, why did God allow his people to suffer such a humiliating defeat? God was not only refining his people by removing ungodly leaders from their positions of authority, But he was also refining his people's understanding of who he is and how they are to relate to him. 
the attitude of Israel's elders and Israel's army towards the Ark of the Covenant, it reveals their faulty attitude towards God. When Israel's elders were in the command centre, discussing what to do to turn this battle around and overcome the Philistines, it probably seemed to them to be an incredibly pious thing to do, to send for the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that represents God's rule. Perhaps they thought that by sending for the Ark, they were recognising God's supreme authority over his people, the one who ultimately fights for his people. Perhaps it seemed to them to be a noble expression of faith in God. Except it wasn't. It was an expression of faith, but it was an expression of the faith they had in their own plans, in their own ideas. When the question was posed as to why the Lord had defeated Israel that day, it's striking that there's no record of Israel's elders pausing to ask God the reason. They don't stop to reflect and pray and ask God what the right way forward is. Well, that's significant in the context of 1 Samuel. Back in chapter 1, Hannah, uh, who, after being unable to give birth to children, conceived and gave birth to Samuel, she emphasises how she is simply asked the Lord for her child. The name Samuel meant asked of the Lord. The theme of asking is going to come up later on in the book too, when the people ask for a king. But here, precisely where you would expect the people to ask the Lord, they don't. Because their faith is not so much in God as it is in their own plans. And their plan is to go and get the Ark of the Covenant, to use the Ark of the Covenant as a kind of lucky rabbit's foot, and to somehow manipulate God into doing what they want rather than seeking and trusting in what God wants. Uh, You and I don't have the Ark of the Covenant as the object that we pin our superstitious hopes to today, but we often act as the Israelites did in this passage. We think that we can put God in a box and utilise him however we want. We think that we can make our plans and God will simply rubber stamp them if we play our Christian cards right. We think that we can control God, that God can be manipulated and used for our own causes. And one of the lessons we need to learn from 1 Samuel 4 is that God would rather allow you to be humiliated. He would rather you be humbled and brought low than allow you to continue with your wrong ideas about him. Often God brings us to the low points we experience so that our dependence on everything and everyone else is stripped away and so that we're brought to depend solely on him. There's one more lesson that we ought to learn from the humiliation of God's people before we move on, and it's this. Just because you can't perceive a purpose in something, it doesn't mean that there isn't one. Imagine how the Israelites would have felt on that humiliating day, humbled in their defeat to the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant had been captured, taken back into enemy territory. What's the point, they might well have thought to themselves. They wouldn't have been able to perceive what God was doing in allowing this humiliation. But the fact that they couldn't perceive what God was doing 
The fact that they couldn't understand how God was actually accomplishing his good purposes for the good of his people in removing the leaders under whom they'd suffered, in refining his people's understanding of who God is, in leading his people into greater trust in God himself. The fact that they couldn't perceive all of that in the moment did not mean that it wasn't true. The fact that you cannot see what God is doing in the midst of your difficulties and frustrations does not mean that he is not doing anything. 1 Samuel 4 subtly teaches us the same truth that the Apostle Paul stated so clearly in Romans 8.28. For God's people, all things work together for our good. Even the bad things that happen to God's people happen so that a greater good might be accomplished. So that our faith might be refined, so that we might be brought into greater dependence on God, so that together as God's people we might be led in the right worship of God. Friends, some of you have had things happen to you that you never would have chosen for yourself. You found yourself in circumstances that you never would have asked for. And if you haven't yet, then there's every likelihood you will. We need to take this lesson and plant it deep in our hearts and our minds. The fact that you cannot perceive how any good could possibly come from your situation does not mean that no good will come. All it means is that you don't understand how it will. But God doesn't tell you that you'll understand how everything will work out. He simply tells you that it will. God is not limited to what we perceive he can do and we should not put our trust in our perceptions but in him who can do far more than we can imagine. And that particular point could hardly be revealed any any more clearly than it is in the second humiliation that we see in our passage. After the humiliation of God's people, secondly, there's the humiliation of God's enemies. The Philistines carry the Ark of the Covenant back to their land and they place it in their temple, the house of Dagon. And we read in chapter 5 verse 2 that they set the Ark up beside the God that they worshipped, this figure called Dagon. What they were doing was an act of triumphant celebration. Israel's God is set beside the God of the Philistines as though he's put there to serve the God of the Philistines. It symbolises their belief that their victory in battle revealed that Israel's God is in fact inferior to Dagon, the God of the Philistines. Imagine the further shame that would have been heaped on God's people if the news outlets would have got hold of this story. The Lord, the God of Israel, serves the God of the Philistines, Dagon. But the news outlets hardly would have had a chance to get hold of the story because overnight something happens. Some Philistines wake up the next morning and go to their temple and this physical figure that they worship as their god, Dagon, he had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, we're told in verse 3. The Ark of the Covenant was initially set beside Dagon as if to show that Israel's God served the Philistines' gods. But here is the Philistines' God bowing, as it were, before Israel's gods. The Philistines, ironically, pick up their so-called God, apparently unable to see that the true God would not need their assistance, 
and they put Dagon back in his place. The next night, something happens again. The Philistines wake up the next morning, go to their temple again, and again Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, only this time his head and his hands had broken off. The head is a symbol of authority. The hands are a symbol of power. A couple of nights ago, it had seemed as though Israel's God was powerless. Israel's God was no longer able to exercise the authority God's people claimed belonged to him. But in the house of Dagon... There's only one powerless, defeated God, and it's not Israel's God. If the initial news story of the new location of the Ark of the Covenant would have humiliated God's people even further, imagine the turnaround, imagine their celebrations when the story breaks of Dagon's demise. The Lord and his people are victorious after all. And now it's the Philistines, the enemies of the Lord and his people, who are humiliated. And they'd be right to celebrate. God conquered his enemies and inflicted a humiliating defeat upon them in humiliating circumstances by defeating the one they claimed was God. And yet, whilst that does give God's people cause for celebration, it also ought to have humbled them even further. Because Israel, in bringing the ark to the battle against the Philistines... They apparently thought that God, the Lord, needed their help in defeating their enemies. Of course, they thought after their first round of humiliation. Of course, the reason we're not on top is because we haven't brought the ark. God can't help us defeat the Philistines without the ark here. And the ark can't get here unless we go and carry it down to battle. As if to say that God cannot help us unless we help him. God needs us, was their flawed assumption. But when Dagon was flawed, when this rival god, so-called, lay impotent on the ground, the message is clear. Where are you now, Israel? Dagon has to wait for his people to come and assist him, to pick him up and carry him, but not God. He, the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, 25, is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Without an Israelite in sight, God conquers his and their enemies. Without any assistance, he humiliates the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's kingly rule. But God does not need his people to support his regime in order to have authority. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's revelation. He determines what is true and he exposes what is false. But he did not need his people to help him expose the false God of the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's mercy. But he required no assistance in mercifully removing Israel's oppressive leaders and Israel's oppressive enemies. He is entirely self-sufficient. The only independent one. What does this mean for us? It means that it ought to be deeply ingrained in our hearts and our minds that God does not need us. He does not need you and I to carry out his plans. We are not invaluable. We are not indispensable. And there is a lot of comfort to be found in that. 
what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5 is that God does not need us in order to protect his people. God does not need us in order to refine his people and purify his people. God does not need us in order to conquer his and our enemies. So we're left to simply humbly seek his ways, ask him when we are in need, and trust him in all situations, all of which is an expression of our dependence on him rather than his dependence on us. Because God conquers his and our enemies without any assistance from us, we ought to recognise that we are dependent on him, not vice versa. I know we're going a little bit longer this week than we usually would, but just bear with me for five more minutes because there's another humiliation that takes place in the passage. We've seen the humiliation of God's people, the humiliation of God's enemies. Thirdly, finally and briefly, we also see the humiliation of God himself. It's hinted at in the humiliation of God's people. When God's people are humiliated, indirectly God is humiliated too. And as we've already seen, God is willing to endure that for the sake of his people. There's another way in which God is humiliated for the sake of his people here. When you take a step back from the detail of the passage, when you consider what exactly takes place in all these events, here's what happens. God's people were defeated in battle and the Ark of the Covenant was captured and taken into enemy territory. For the ark to be taken into the land of the Philistines was for the ark to be taken out of the land of Israel. The ark was, in a word, exiled. That may not mean so much to us today, but it would have been hugely significant for God's people in the Old Testament. When God established his people as a nation, he brought his people into a covenant relationship with him. A little bit like when a man and woman get married and enter into a marriage covenant. And he laid out the terms for this particular covenant. And when he did so in Deuteronomy 28, he made it clear that there would be particular blessings for God's people when they were faithful to the covenant. But there would also be particular curses for God's people when they were unfaithful to the covenant. And many of the blessings and the curses relate to Israel's life in the promised land that God had brought them into. They'd prosper in the land if they were faithful to the covenant, but they'd suffer in the land if they were unfaithful to the covenant. One of the curses outlined, interestingly, is that the Lord would cause his people to be defeated by their enemies if they were unfaithful to the covenant. Reading Deuteronomy 28 certainly helps put the beginning of 1 Samuel in context. But the climax of the curses outlined for covenant disobedience was not suffering defeat at the hands of enemies. The climax, the pinnacle of the curses for covenant unfaithfulness was exile from the land. God outlined this for his people in Deuteronomy 28, 64. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. God's people, if they were unfaithful to God, would be scattered, exiled from the land God had brought them into. Yet in 1 Samuel 4 and 5, what do we see? We certainly see that God's people had been unfaithful to him. We certainly see the potential of exile looming large on the horizon for God's people. 
But who is it that goes into exile? In a very real sense, it's not the people, it's God. The Ark of the Covenant is exiled from the land. The symbol of God's rule, the symbol of God's throne, the symbol of God's very presence. That is what is taken into exile. Which is to say, when his unfaithful people were deserving of curse and exile, God takes the curse upon himself and he goes into exile. And there, under the curse, outside the land, he conquers his people's enemies on their behalf without any help from them. What took place on that day in Israel's history was an introduction to what would take place centuries later when the Lord Jesus Christ would die on the cross. When Jesus Christ was crucified, he was taken outside the city walls, out of the land. He was exiled in enemy territory. And there in exile, he took the curse that his unfaithful people deserved as he offered up his life and died. In the final paragraph of our passage, we didn't read it, but the final paragraph that's printed in our order of worship, 1 Samuel 5, 6 to 12, the Philistines, they just don't know what to do with the Ark of the Covenant. A plague, some form of skin disease had broken out among them and they knew it was because the Ark of the Lord was with them. And so in their panic, they carry the Ark around the various regions of their land. The people of Ashdod take it up to the people of Gath, The people of Gath take it to the people of Ekron before they decide that it needs to be sent back to its rightful place. The irony is that not only had God conquered the Philistines without one iota of help from his people, but he also secures for himself a victory parade with the ark being paraded through enemy territory. God not only endures humiliation for the sake of his people, but he turns his humiliation into triumph. Which is precisely what takes place at the cross. When Jesus Christ was crucified, there is no doubt that it was a humiliation. Just think about it. In its basic essence, the Son of God, stripped naked, beaten, nailed to a cross to die what was considered the most publicly humiliating of deaths. Yet God in his wisdom was securing a great victory in the midst of the humiliation. We heard earlier in the service the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ at the cross. One French theologian once wrote this verse, uh, once wrote on this verse, sorry. He said, Paul, with good reason, magnificently proclaims the triumph that Christ obtained for himself on the cross. As if the cross, which was full of shame, had been changed into a triumphal chariot. Who among the Israelites would have imagined such a victory would come through the humiliation of the defeat of the Philistines and the capture of the ark? Who among us would have imagined such a victory would come through the humiliation of the cross? With a God like this, why would we ever want to limit him to our understanding? 
when life gets worse, before it gets better, don't turn in any other direction than towards him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we marvel this afternoon at your great wisdom, especially as we see it in the victory you accomplish at the cross of the Lord Jesus. Help us understand these things and take them in and live as we ought to, depending on you, refusing to depend on ourselves and on other things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the Connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.